Are there any questions about that practice or about any uh, difficulties or anything on your mind about meditation itself? We're going to use a microphone for questions too. How important is it to note things twice? I don't know. (laughs) It's one of those things I just learned. It was the way it was always taught. Um, I think that the effect of it is to kind of uh, penetrate your awareness so you're not just kind of, it it kind of stands out more clearly rather than just going thinking, hearing, and falling into just almost a rut with that. But it kind of makes it like very distinct uh, and some again somewhat mechanical, so it kind of brings you out of uh, the just kind of rambling. But uh, you know, there's no meditation police in there to you know give you a ticket for single noting. It's fine, whatever. You know, the more, main point, first of all, is to just be become more aware of things, uh, and then to get the sense of what the practice is so that whether you're using that practice or specific noting practice or not, that you're trying to have that kind of precision in your awareness and you at least realize that there's, there is that potential to go to that detail. So. Hi. Someone back there, Daria. Um, if I don't notice something till after it's already happened, should I still? Well, usually with thinking, we don't realize we're thinking until after. It's really only when the mind is very still that we can actually notice. Oh, I'm starting to think, or I'm having a thought. Usually, it's like, oh, wait, I'm thinking. And so it is almost by definition uh, a, a um, retro, what is it, retrospective? Retro, what am I thinking of? Yeah, in retrospect, right, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's fine. So yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, well, I thought I was supposed to be in the present moment. Yeah, we try, but uh, yeah. Down here, was there? Yeah. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit about um, resentment came up for me today as a gift from someone else? Usually, yeah. Yeah. Other people do that to us. I was not allowed to have anger in my home as a (laughs) child, there was no anger. But we had lots of resentment. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't have anger. So could you talk about that just a little, please? Well, it sounds like you have the experience with it. Yes, I know. But could you talk a little bit about... I was not allowed to have the anger. Yeah. But we definitely had resentment. You know what I mean? So. Well, 
Well, I'd like to hear more about what you mean. Okay, so... Go ahead. You have the floor. Our household floor. did not have anger. Our parents did not get angry. The children did not get angry. So, so there was this unnatural kind of suppression of anger. Unnatural suppression, yes, okay. exactly. Thank you. Um, but so there, what, but there, we there, definitely there, so yes so we definitely had resentment. So how full do you distinguish? Blown. How do you distinguish those? Between okay, them? so angry is the of the moment. Okay, so it's the emotional expression of. It's the, resentment. the of the moment. Angry to me is of the moment. Healthy. I am angry right now. Mm-hmm. I am like what's happening right now makes me angry right now. Uh-huh. Resentment is something that has. Uh, has boiled up from past. Yeah. Resentment is the uh, wish fulfillment for the past, mm-hmm. trying to change the past, yeah. you know. It's making, wanting to make the past what it was not, and mm-hmm. now I have resentment. Mm-hmm. So... And I know as an alcoholic that um, it's resentment and anger that will take me out. Mm-hmm. But if I just said I'm angry right now, that wouldn't take me out. Mm-hmm. But resentment will take me out. Yeah. yeah, you know? That's a good, I think that's a good distinction you're drawing, you know, between a natural kind of emotional expression of a feeling and a. Uh, Something that's more of a um, a gnawing and kind of uh, malignant mental state that gets and and just that's that's justified, right? We that's that we uh, that justified resentment and and that you know there's this sense of injustice that's been done to us and all of that in the story. So it's much more than it seems like. It's much more about ego. Yeah. Is with resentment that you're, it's about me and how I've been uh, wronged and. Uh, I mean, it just. It, I think it's really good the way. You, I mean, you're aware of it, right? Isn't that kind of the key to the whole thing? And when we're aware of the experience or of the, the habitual mental behavior, then that's the starting point. Then we have to take, there's a few things that have to come after that. Then we have to have an intention to change. Because if we are aware of it, but we think, oh, that's okay, you know, I have my resentments, I have, then we just hold on to them. Oh yeah, I'm resentful, but they deserve it, or whatever. So there has to be then, and the, the, the motivation to change is when we see how the resentment causes us pain. What, our, uh, what we unconsciously believe is that by being angry with someone else, we're hurting them. And that's, of course, delusion. If it only worked that way, wouldn't it be convenient? You know, there'd be people blowing up. You know, <laughs> wow, somebody really hates them. 
but we're the ones who are suffering. So this is again where we have to bring in awareness and see uh, what, what the result is. So if we track the mind, track the emotional states, track the thoughts, then we see, oh, when I, when I follow this line of thinking, what happens is my body constricts, I feel it's, it's physically painful, and I'm, I am in this seething state, and it's, it's just, uh, you know, just takes you to a totally negative place. So it's, when we see that, we see that we're creating our own suffering then we have the motivation to change. Now then we have to, I mean, this is really all 12 steps pretty much, you know, I mean, because there's the, the first step is that recognizing the suffering that's happening, recognizing the pain. But then there has to be this decision to, to change and to act differently, to be a motivation and then a decision to change. I mean, the st- step two is the belief that you can change. There's some other way to be. And then sort of starting to adopt some other way of being and living in a different way. And then that step six and seven of kind of continuously do, uh, doing this process. Keep watching over and over because the habits, just because we realize we have the habit doesn't mean it stops. And the only way to break the habit is by repeatedly undercutting it by being aware when it arises and noticing the pain and then finding a way to let go. You know, breathing or coming back into the moment or you know, cultivating loving kindness, praying for the person we resent, uh, thinking about something else, whatever takes us away from it. And doing that over and over eventually takes out the power. The habit you know, uh, gets undermined and weakened. doesn't necessarily mean it's ever going to be completely uh, destroyed because that kind of conditioning, particularly from the childhood, is very difficult to completely eliminate. But we can get to a point where it doesn't have nearly as much control over us as it, as it does when we're not aware. So someone back there wants to say something. Um. <clears throat> don't you think, or do you, do you think having therapy, you know, talking therapy, uh, or helps to arrive at this uh, no, an awareness? Yeah, I, I think that's what, uh, what it's for, to a great extent. What's, um, the thing is that it can tend to stay kind of from the neck up in therapy, mm-hmm. and Meditation practice brings it down into the body. So when you feel, until we really feel the experience, it's just something we're kind of yapping about. <laughs> and then when we drop into the body and start to feel how it's happening, then we kind of connect with why, with the, the true suffering that's happening. And it also gives us a way to let go because when you're in the body, there aren't any words. And you can just rest in the experience, breathe and kind of, let go. It's a good way of, of letting go. And it's also, you know, Buddhism is also, as Jack Kornfield talks about, it's a positive psychology. So it's also trying to cultivate other qualities. One of the main ones that we try to cultivate in, medit- in Buddhist practice is compassion or, and loving kindness. So this isn't just about 
letting go of resentment, but it's also cultivating a more loving heart, which is another one of the motivations then, one of the things that powers our intention, is who we actually want to be, not just about a particular issue, but who we really want to be in the world, that we want to be a loving and a compassionate person. And so then there's the practices of loving kindness and compassion that cultivate those, as well as mindfulness itself actually tends to cultivate loving kindness as the hindrances fall away. But that's another Dharma talk. <laughs> now we've got, now everybody wants to share. Great. So, good, we got you going, stirred you up. Last week you talked about um, paying attention to the breath and then uh, in meditation and when we go away from the breath, when we find ourselves in thought, uh, that it's painted, when we find ourselves in thought and coming back, that it's a success to notice that we are, Yeah. that it's a success. Right. You, it's a moment of awareness. You, you've woken up in that moment. Yeah. And... I've always thought of it as, oh, shit. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and would you talk more about that? Because that, that was really helpful for me. It's the good news, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's actually simply a question. It's just uh, kind of like a form of logic that what is happening in the moment when you realize you're thinking is that you realize you're thinking. And realizing anything is what mindfulness is about. Oh, I realize that I'm breathing. I realize that I'm thinking. It's just being aware. So although you've been spacing out for the last five minutes, you can't know you're spacing out when you're spacing out. It's only when you stop spacing out that you realize that you've been spacing out. So right then, you're awake. And, and so if you take that moment as an opportunity to beat yourself up for what you did the last five minutes, then you just kind of wasted that moment of waking up and turned it into another kind of neurotic uh, self-flagellation instead of going, ah, okay, I'm back. Good, what's happening now? Okay? Good. Um, today I had a lot of difficulty with <clears throat> some obsessive thinking about a certain relationship, and uh, I could. I, that's just yeah. People and, like you. <laughs> and, um, my therapist said, you know, because it's taken me away from life, you know, because I'm going through this thing. And then I thought tonight was just going to be just horrendous because I would be so deep into that. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but I wasn't. Uh-huh. And it was basically, it was just a steady stream of pictures, just mm-hmm. pictures that didn't have any emotional charge mm. <clears throat> really at all. Mm-hmm. And so I was just thinking, I was wondering you know, is this practice a way of healing that kind of obsessiveness, or...? Yes, and you can never predict what's going to appear in your mind. I mean, typically, when you sit down and meditate, whatever's been going on tends to kind of 
come back up and get recycled. But not, I mean, there's so much going on that, you know, you don't know what's going to get, what's going to cycle through. Mm. Certainly, this practice is healing and often allows us at least to burn off the obsessions. Mm. That if you sit still long enough, it's kind of like your mind just gets tired of it. Mm. Um, and sometimes just by, you know, the, it's again, it's like we don't really know until we turn our attention to our mind. We really don't know what's going on in our mind. You think, oh, I'm really obsessing about this, but you, but maybe you were done. You know, who knows? I mean, it just. But certainly this practice is a great way of, of healing those kinds of, of uh, issues that happen in the mind. They, you, you can sometimes really kind of just, psh, they'll just disappear. Sometimes not. You know, sometimes you have to kind of sit with them and they just keep cooking. As I say, they kind of, they kind of burn off. Um, Oftentimes I find, again, that I go into my body rather than into my head and the obsession, and then I can feel the obsession in the body, kind of, and by simply relaxing and releasing in the body that the, the energy that's driving the thinking dissipates. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it, that, that tension or anxiety uh, or frustration is stored in the body, and the thing that kind of keeps feeding the mind is that tension. So when you address that, oftentimes it just the, there isn't any more energy to feed the thinking. Okay, just one other quick question. Sure. It seemed like a series of images. Would that be? Would you label that thinking or or seeing? Or seeing? Yeah, yeah. you can label it seeing. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, it's not so important what words you choose. Whatever, whatever appears, it, you can say thinking or say seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, we got the whole other show over here. <laughs> right, why don't you let this young lady here? Because she was volunteering, so she should get some credit. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I have two questions. One was just kind of um, piggybacking off hers about um, obsessive thinking. Just wondering, like, during one's daily life, do you have suggestions about how to interrupt that? And then my second question is um, uh, about the difference between like addictive craving and longing that's full of uh, information. Um, like I have a my my therapist suggested that I refrain from thinking or taking actions about going to a certain place, which is like my hometown that I have a like really profound longing for. And um, she said, refrain from it as if from alcohol. But for me, it doesn't feel like addiction. It feels like longing, but maybe that's the addict's mind going. So I'm not sure about the difference there. I don't want to get between you and your therapist. (laughs) I mean, because it's sort of like you're asking me to tell you that you're right and your therapist is wrong. Because I don't know what, you know, it's... Uh, there's different, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, you're showing a, 
a, a level of awareness, which I, I'm, I can't think of another word is other than good, that you're seeing that there's these different energies and different forms of desire and longing. From a mindfulness standpoint, that's kind of what we're trying to see. Whether one is one you should follow or not is sort of another issue, you know. Um, it's, it's difficult for me to uh, say. The Buddha talked about um, the desire that leads to more suffering and the desire that leads to the end of suffering. So there's a kind of positive kind of desire or right intention when the intention is to move towards freedom. So that's kind of like the, the desire to learn more about the Dharma or to go deeper into the steps or become more free. That's, that's, but in terms of sort of separating uh, addictive desire from a longing, there, there's not any traditional teaching that I can draw on for that. Uh, my, I'm not, I would, you know, I, I can't really, you know, unless I was in your own, in your body, I wouldn't really know how that, how you're distinguishing them. And now that we've forgotten the first question, so that was what? It was um, just like, if there were any practical suggestions for interrupting obsessive thinking, like in daily life. Yeah, it's, obviously it's harder, and this is why we practice meditation to strengthen in some sense, we're trying to strengthen that natural capacity so that we can draw upon it in our daily life. It, it's really, though, it seems to me, mostly a matter of stopping uh, what you're doing. Because if you're in the middle of action, be it you know, looking at a computer or talking to someone or driving somewhere, it, you know, there's so much energy being generated by the activity itself that it's very hard to stop the mind when it's speeding along along with the action. So if you can stop, in stopping can be one breath, but just long enough to go breathe and feel through your body, kind of feel the energy and like, inner, so, but it, it all depends on realizing that it's happening. That's the hardest thing. Once you realize it's happening, then you can kind of stop for a moment and then interrupt it. Once it's interrupted, there's a break and there's potential to, you know, not have it not keep snowballing. But there's sort of no secret to the how you notice it. It's that's again why we practice because we habituate this behavior of noticing of noticing thinking and noticing the discomfort that's coming with obsessiveness or with different uh, painful forms of thought. And the more you practice noticing that, the more you notice it. Yeah. Yeah. There's another hand up here. Mine's real quick and probably very basic. Um, as oh, a very beginning practitioner, toward the end of our meditation tonight, I was getting quite claustrophobic, almost, you know, in a physical sense. Mm -hmm. And is that is that common with beginners? 
Well, uh, I suppose it is. It's actually restlessness you're talking about. I'm talking about uh, like a physical, you know, instead of the gray, when I have my eyes closed, it was getting smaller and darker out yeah. in front of me. But it's, it's restlessness, even though it feels constrict. It's, it's, um, it feels mental, but it's physical? Well, restlessness, uh, this is one of the five hindrances. The hindrances are desire, aversion, and sloth and torpor, which is mental and physical, mm-hmm. and restlessness and worry. And doubt. So restlessness and worry is one hindrance, both physical and mental. Has it has a physical and, and mental aspect, um, and so it is. So at the feeling of of claustrophobia is is the feeling that you want to break out, uh, or of or it, well, it's the feeling you want to break out because you feel fr- it's you feel closed in. So that's the, and that's that's a form of restlessness. So. Um, Yes, when you, uh, in terms of, you know, your question, is that a normal thing for a beginner? I don't want to call it so much a beginner because I think it's, it's, um, there's a kind of a meditation muscle that develops the ability to just be still that it can be very difficult at first and people will find you know, five minutes is really hard, and then but you you build it up, and um, and there are times when you will just. I'll just talk about myself. There are times when I'm sitting, when I just get to the point where I go, okay, I'm done, and it's just like I I ran out of meditation muscle, out of the strength to just be still and to sit and tolerate the experience, and and yeah, it's something that just builds up over time and you have to kind of keep stretching a little bit at a time, building up that muscle a little bit at a time. Um, I would suggest at that moment though, if there is this um, feeling of uh, anxiety or around it, that you open your eyes. Yeah, is that what you did? Mm -hmm. Good. So yeah, so you did sort of the, you auto automatically knew what to do. That's the, that's the natural antidote to that. It's just open the eyes and, and realize, oh, I'm, I'm just sitting here. You know, because there's this feeling like, oh, I can't stand this. It's like, oh, oh I'm just sitting here. So, yeah. So, uh, do you have, is there one more? Okay. I want us to have a little break. And, yeah. well, you wait long enough and you hear the answer to your question. There's, there's um, that, hopefully. I think that uh, you may have touched on it um, in answering some of the other questions, but um, in your book, One Breath at a Time, you say that um, meditation helps us gain clarity. Can you speak a little bit bit more about that? Uh, (laughs) Which step was that? Uh. Uh. <laughs> well, why do we meditate? Don't ask me. I just work here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can think of the process of meditation as being one of kind of attrition, 
where the things that obscure our natural wisdom, our natural peace, our natural sense of serenity gradually fall away. We have practices that cultivate certain qualities that allow that to happen. But my experience is that it isn't so important what practice you're doing, that if you just show up and are still and have some intention to be present, that over time the five hindrances will pass, they'll disappear for periods of t- temporarily. Um, and that as that happens, this natural clarity, if you will, this natural wisdom just shines forth. It's there already. So you don't have to import it or try to create it. It's simply a matter of allowing the things that block it to be removed. So this is why people talk about our Buddha nature or uh, you know, some such ideas of, of us being you know, ch- children of God or something. You know, whatever, whenever we talk about some our natural purity, this is what we're talking about, that, that the experience of doing this practice is one of discovering that there isn't something I have to do in order to become something that all I have to do is let this stuff go away in its own time. And as I say, there are, there are skillful means for that, but it's a natural process. Um, and that's, that's, what I, that's how I see this being about clarity. So you don't have to go, well, how do I get that clarity? You know, it's really l- keep l- letting go of the things that block clarity, and the clarity is there. So that's a good note. I just, well, yeah, we we need to take a break so we can actually talk about step two and come. So we're going to take about five minutes and ring a bell and use the.